Hi, I'm Kathy Walker, teacher, feminist and parent, and this is Raise Her Up, a podcast from the GDST, the UK's leading family of girls' schools. With 19,000 students across 25 schools and the largest women's alumni network of its kind, we are experts in girls' education and everything that goes with it. Even as a teacher with over 20 years experience of working with young people and as a mum of two girls, I am still learning every day. I think we all are. In each episode, we'll welcome an expert guest who will address a different topic that, as modern parents, we are bound to encounter at some point. My very special guest for this episode of Raise Her Up is mental health campaigner, columnist, broadcaster and author, Natasha Devon, MBE. Something that I learned quite quickly is that you can't really divorce mental health from social justice. They're completely (laughs) intertwined. Young people are coming into school with some quite troubling views on some things because when young people together they kind of bring each other up on issues race gender sexuality class and so there's a lot to unpack in 2015 the year she was awarded her mbe for work with young people natasha was made the department for education's first ever mental health champions for schools from the gdst this is raise her up and this is natasha devon mbe Natasha, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. It's lovely to see you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Do you ever just take the time to step back and take in all your achievements and appreciate the difference that you've made to young people? That's a really nice question. Um, This is something I've really had to work on because I am a huge perfectionist and I always used to think that that was a positive character trait in myself. And then Back in 2019, I wrote a book for teenagers. It was called How to Ace Your Exams Without Losing Your Mind. And it was all about how, in terms of the health of the brain and your academic performance, it has a kind of symbiotic relationship. And when I wrote that book, I did um, a a lot of consulting with a guy called Dr. Thomas Curran, um, who is an an expert on perfectionism in, in Gen Z. And he was talking to me about how it manifests in young people and how important it is to incorporate activities into your routine that you're not necessarily the best at and how it improves your quality of life and how failure is part of the learning experience. And I was sitting there going, I literally cannot preach this unless I practice it. So I've tried to get better at just being still, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And appreciating yourself. Um, Let me take you back to something you said there about about acing your exams without losing your mind. Um, I'd really like to ask you about your mental health champion role. You were very outspoken at the time about the pressure for young people to perform academically uh, correlating with anxiety and, you know, the the toll on mental health. Um, And you were then very outspoken again about how the government responded to you bringing attention to this. Can you talk us through a little bit about what happened? Um, I think it's a really important point to make about that balancing of good mental health and keeping in perspective the academic workload of young people? Well, I mean, I think the first thing to say about that time is that it was a a very odd time in my life generally. I had a, a lot going on. I took the role initially, firstly, because I was surprised that they asked me because I'm a very outspoken lefty. Um, And so for a conservative government to say, we want to work with you on mental health was, (laughs) I thought, an indication that they were prepared to hear perspectives that perhaps they 
had dismissed in the past. And also because the civil servant that I spoke to said, this is an opportunity for you to influence policy. Those were her exact words. So I thought it would be churlish to turn this down. This is an opportunity for kind of collaboration. But Mm. I think what people saw was the point at which I snapped. And there was so much that went before that, just endless, endless round tables going in, talking about my experience of speaking to teachers and parents and young people in schools and their observations about the education system and also mental health services, which are two massive structural things which impact young people's mental health, and just being ignored in favour of other people at the round table who said, well, let's just give them an app because young people love badges. So I just felt like I was spending so much time turning up to Parliament and having And it wasn't even my voice ignored. It was the voices of all the people that I work with ignored. And so I just got to a stage where I had enough um, and started being really deliberately provocative because there was a platform that came with that. So I was invited to events and on television. And I thought, I'm just going to take the opportunity to tell the truth. If if they're not going to show me respect, I'm not going to show any respect in return. And now, of course, I, I've been replaced with Dr. Alex George. And, and I've got a lot of respect for Dr. Alex George, but he's not me. You know, he's a reality TV star who speaks very well from a perspective of, you know, losing his brother and doesn't really question the political side too much. That's what they wanted. So let's talk about that campaigning role that you have had. And you, you've already mentioned Gen Z. They are incredibly politically aware. They have an incredibly strong, keen sense of social justice. Um, do you recommend a, a, a career in campaigning? Um, you know, we, we, we try to prepare our young women at the GDST for an ever-changing world. And they clearly want to change the world. And working with those young women, as I'm very fortunate to do, I feel hugely optimistic for the future. But you, it sounds like you have a, a different experience of it. You wouldn't be able to dissuade them from wanting to do activism, even if it wasn't a path I recommended. You know, that's not going to make any difference. But I do have some kind of practical tips that I share with them. One of them is, and I actually got this from Catelyn Moran. I, I heard her on a podcast and she said that feminism is like a patchwork quilt and we've all got our little square and together we make something that it covers a lot, but, you know, just focus on your square because you can't fix everything. And that's really at the root of my advice to young people is focus on one thing that you would like to change and be prepared for when you put that out into the world, there'll be a lot of this doesn't apply to me. What about me? Or what about these people, this group of people that you've forgotten? Mm. That's inevitable because you can't take everybody into account. But If you have good evidence to show that a lot of people care about this change, that's enough and focus. And also I tell them about how boring it is because (laughs) campaigning has got a kind of sexy reputation now. But, you know, I've I've been working on this campaign with Lucy Cave at Bauer uh, for four years now, trying to introduce a really simple law change around workplace mental health. And we keep nearly doing it. And then there's a cabinet reshuffle. And so we have to start again from scratch. And it's just, it's like, imagine it like a goat, you know, but sticking your hooves in the mud, just keep going, but be prepared for the boredom. 
Yes, of course, because what we get to see is the big media splash when finally legislation has been changed or something, you know, you, you see the impact that you've had. But I imagine that there's a lot of emailing and a lot of phone calls and a lot of, like you say, adapting to it behind the scenes. And also a lot of having to explain yourself for the gazillionth time. And I think when you're so immersed in something, you know, it's it's easy to assume that everybody has the same level of knowledge that you do because you kind of go, well, that's obvious. Why would anyone not know that? And then sometimes you get asked a question where you realize this is not this person's experience and you kind of go, oh, yes. I can't believe I'm having to explain why this is important. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of that. So talking about, you know, explaining about why things are important, you are a very well-known face now of mental health campaigning and education. How did you come into this career? Did you have certain experiences of your own that that made you want to make a change or or share your story? Initially, yes. It it sort of changed as I was doing it. So I first got into this entirely by accident, really. Um, This this is retrospective knowledge, but I now realise that I started having panic attacks when I was 10. Um, And that's because it was a really difficult time. My my brother was born four months premature. And because he was so early, he arrived really soon after my other brother as well. So I'd been an only child for ages. And then suddenly I had two siblings, one of whom was really poorly. So my home life changed overnight. And then my cousin died six months later and she was only a year younger than me. She was nine. Oh my goodness. And also my grandparents, who I was really close to, moved to Norfolk. So they lived they lived just down the road and I spent a lot of time with them. Um, and then they moved really far away, or it seemed like it was really far away at the time. So there were all of these changes happening simultaneously. And I just found it really difficult to cope and also felt not entitled to make a fuss because there were so many dramatic things happening all at the same time. I thought I've got to be good kind of thing. So I sort of swallowed down everything that I was feeling at the time. And that's something that I've struggled with all all my life since I was 10. But there's been periods where it's spilled over. So when I was at university, I developed an eating disorder, which was a, a coping tool for anxiety, I now understand. And I've um, there's been periods of self-harm in my life as well. Um, and the, initially my work in schools was inspired by the fact that I was shocked that mental health issues had happened to me. And as I started to get better, I sort of started to examine that thought and go, well, why, why did you think you were exempt? And it was stupid things like, um, clever, you know, I got all A's in my A levels. I went to university. You know, people like me don't get mental health issues. And I realized that the only mental health stories that I'd heard as well had been very, very dramatic. And I'm not saying that there's not a place for those stories. Those stories need to be told. But some of the feedback I get from students now is, oh, your story's so relatable. Like I can imagine that happening to me because it's not, you know, this big, huge thing. Um, it's it's an everyday story in many regards. So I, I kind of wanted to make the mental health conversation a bit more universal. And so what I did initially was I I went back to my old school, which was an all girls school. And then I went to our brother's school down the road, which is all boys. And I interviewed a couple of hundred teenagers in each school. And I said, if you could have a PSHE lesson on anything, what would you pick? And overwhelmingly, they said body image. Even the boys said that. And this was 2008. So that was a really radical thing to say at the time. 
So I created these these lessons on body image, started taking them into schools. And this was an, a time in my life where I was like, I don't really know what I want to do with my life. I'll just do this for now while I'm deciding. And then 14 years later, yes, still doing it. <laughs> um, so I was just going to say the lesson to learn there is that mental health issues are not going away, are they? What are you observing post-COVID? You know, you, you've spoken there from your own experience about panic attacks, about grief, about children's um, tendency to want to hide what they're going through because they perceive that other people are doing all right. You've spoken about eating disorders. And we know that these are all things that have increased uh, post-COVID. What's your perspective? I think there's a huge thing in all of our stress buckets at the moment, a couple of huge things as well, because as we record, there's also war in Ukraine. And all of the kind of economic as well worries that have come with that. There's this huge thing taking up space in all of our stress buckets. And, and when you've got one huge overwhelming worry, the little things become less easy to deal with. So uh, lots of the teachers and parents that I've spoken to have said there is just this inability to cope with what should be quite common or garden stress and anxiety. There's also, I think, a lot more conversations happening around technology and social media addiction. And another observation that has been made to me is that young people are coming into school with some quite troubling views on some things. Because when, when young people together, they kind of bring each other up on, on issues, race, gender, sexuality, class. But they've been at home and they've been they've had a different set of influences and so there's a lot to unpack with with that aspect of it as well in each episode of race up we hear from a member of our gdst family giving their perspective on the matter at hand hello my name is lauren munro hall i'm head of year 11 head of pshe and p teacher at notting hill and ealing high school In my view, PSHE has changed dramatically over the past few years with the need to teach young people how to navigate a climate which is becoming increasingly complex. Across the GDST, our PSHE provision aims to focus on encouraging kindness and respect, whilst also empowering the girls to talk about consent and respect, both within relationships and friendships. There are several initiatives which are run in our schools to help tackle this. Firstly, the Positive Project. The programme uses a range of different tools supported by mobile apps to encourage self-reflection. This toolkit helps and supports students as they develop and give them a better insight into managing their thoughts, feelings and behaviour so they can thrive and flourish in their relationships. GDSD-wide initiatives involve schools coming together to create and develop the sisterhood amongst schools. For example, during Children's Mental Health Week, a GDST Wellbeing Well was created in which each school contributed tips to maintain good mental health. Something new that would be rolled out this year is the Wellbeing Hub Portal. This is an online platform which provides 24-7 support for pupils where they can gain tools to manage their relationships. This includes answer pages on toxic friendships and how to manage them and tips on how to talk about tricky topics. We run the Big Sister programme. A Year 7 student is paired with a Year 12 student and they meet frequently over a cup of tea or an activity such as making origami. This gives them time to talk to older students who may have experienced similar worries or friendship problems. We also have a coaching programme which involves trained teachers having sessions with an individual student providing practical and mental strategies to work through a problem they may have. Can I now 
talk to you about your forthcoming young adult novel, Toxic. It's out later on this month. I am um, really enjoying it. Um, I find it very relatable about how it feels to be a teen uncomfortable in your own skin as a six footer myself as well. That really spoke to me. Um, how, how did this come about, Natasha? How did you come to write this book? I should say when I'm in schools, I, I do focus groups as, as well as delivering talks so that the kind of roster of lessons that I offer is ever evolving in, in response to, to what young people tell me they need. And this theme was emerging of particularly or not, although not exclusively girls saying, I'd really like something on abusive behavior or coercive control within the context of friendship. And this was, I think, a, a response to there'd been a, a fairly recent change in the SRE curriculum. So they were learning about it in the context of romantic relationships. And they were saying, that's great. But actually, I struggle with this, not only in friendship, but in, in the context of a friendship with somebody that I have to see every day because we go to the same school. So I, I don't have the option to cut them out. So I started thinking about this and I thought this would make a, a really good story um, and I love YA, genuinely. I would choose to read it even if I didn't work with young people. I love authors like Holly Bourne and Juno Dawson yeah. and Angie Thomas. Love. So so I, I've always had it in the back of my mind. I would love to write a book with a, a teenager as the, the protagonist. So this idea about uh, Luella started to emerge. And then lockdown happened. So all my work got cancelled overnight. And I thought, I've got some time. <laughs> which is something that I don't usually have. So I thought I'll, I'll write this thing. And initially I just wanted to see if I could do it because I've written nonfiction before, but writing fiction is so different. Um, it, I always describe it like it's the difference between playing piano and guitar. Like it's all music, but it's a very different set of skills that you need to do it. And then the, the more I got into it, the more um, it started to take shape and other themes started to emerge. And um, I was very lucky that Yuclan picked it up, and yeah, it's out this summer. That's the that's the story of the book. So the the novel is called Toxic. Um, it's such a buzzword at the moment, isn't it? In terms of you know toxic masculinity, toxic relationships. Um, I guess that was a very intentional use of the word. Yes, and it doesn't just relate to the relationship that's central to the book, which it, it is a toxic friendship. But one of the things that I try to emphasise is that there, there are no goodies and baddies. There's no heroes and villains in life. Luella and Aretha, who are the, the two main characters, come together and between them, they create this really toxic dynamic. You know, they're not evil. <laughs> they're not a supervillain in any way. It just doesn't work. But the other thing that it relates to is right at the beginning, Luella's talking to her therapist. And we know that there's this big thing that's happened to Luella that she's not prepared to explore or talk about, not even in therapy. And her therapist says to her, our traumas are like little bags of poison. And in therapy, you you lance them and you drain them away safely. But if you don't, you're just carrying around this bag of poison. And one day something could pop it and it could happen when you don't expect it. So that it the, the theme of toxic, it relates to that bag of poison that Luella's carrying around, which gets burst um, in quite 
spectacular fashion. It's really interesting to hear you talk about the fact that together these girls just don't work. Because when you are in the moment as a, and you know, quite often it is a teenage girl, girl friendships are, are notoriously difficult. It's so easy to vilify the other person rather than kind of seeing halfway that actually there is just a dynamic here that is just not working as opposed to it being one person's fault. And I think it's really uh, helpful for you to, to, for you to say that and for them to hear it and read it. Yeah. And there's a lot of anxiety as well about who gets to control the narrative. And I think social media has made this worse, but it's always been the case. Whose side are you on? You know, everyone else at school in my year group, pick a side. You have to. You have to acknowledge that this person's done something bad to me. And, um, you know, life is just full of flawed people who make mistakes. And, um, that, you know, one, one of the final revelations that Luella has is that if she carries around a grudge, again, it's the, the, the thing about poison. There's that famous quote, if, if you have a grudge, it's like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Like the only person you're harming is yourself. So talking about, you know, the word toxic being a buzzword, um, another buzzword in education, as you will know, is, is resilience and how we can teach our, our children to bounce back. Um, I was so interested in your take uh, on this about resilience being less of a character trait and more of a byproduct of being adequately supported. And you've said that in, in, in Toxic, uh, Luella's uh, wider network of friendships see her through. Um, and and I, I love that part of the book as well, because I firmly believe that we should not be encouraging one bestie. It is all about your network of very different friends, I think. Um, so tell us a bit more about, about that take on resilience. Yeah. And that that's the other thing. I didn't want to write, uh, aren't women awful? Uh, aren't they bitchy <laughs> novel? Um, because female friendship is is one of the most powerful things on earth. And Luella is, sur- is surrounded by this incredible matriarchy. Her mum is amazing. Her nan is amazing. She actually has somebody who f- is fulfilling the role of best friend. She just doesn't notice <laughs> until right at the very end. And she's got a great therapist. Um, there's all these incredible women and the occasional man um, around her. And that's what enables her to be resilient. And I got really frustrated with the way that resilience as a term was being used in education because it's not really something that you can teach. And it's definitely not a character trait that you can choose to switch on or off. Uh, Resilient people are well supported. So it has much more to do with your environment than it does to have you as an individual. And I, I I felt like we were getting to a stage where we were almost punishing people for not being resilient enough. Again, it's to use that buzzword of toxic, is this really toxic ideology which young people take on so early in their lives. This idea that your value as a person is tied up with the uh, amount of perceivable achievements that you have and how hard you work. And people are praised for burning themselves out that has become something that is aspirational, you know, well done. This, all of this stuff didn't have an effect on you. And yet I, oh, I was watching the most amazing thing um, on Netflix the other day by Hannah Gadsby, which is, it was called Nanette. And it's so powerful. It's amazing. And, and she was saying, you know, as an artist, she's a comedian and um, a sort of performer. And she was saying, my sensitivity is really key to having been a successful creative and no one ever talks about that, that it, that it can be a, an advantage. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, what you said just now about, you know, where you find your value and that people, you know, burn themselves out to prove themselves, etc. And obviously young people find a lot of their value by posting something online and seeing how many likes they get. And you know, so much of, of it of um a young person's lived experience happens online. And as we know, there's the kind of cyberbullying and that faceless trolling. So much easier online incredibly distressing to be on the receiving end of. Have you experienced any of that yourself um, because of your high profile role in, in, in calling out this kind of behaviour? I'm a woman in the public eye with opinions. Um, so, of course, I've, I've experienced the whole spectrum of um, online abuse, you know, everything from what might be considered quite subtle all the way through to stuff that I've had to report to the police. And it's what's really interesting to me is that Online, it's it's an avatar of you. It's a version of you with with all of the bits that you're not willing to show photoshopped out, essentially. So when you get validation, it never really hits the spot because you can always justify it by saying, oh, well, that's not the real me, though. If they knew me genuinely, they wouldn't be saying that. And yet when you get abuse, your initial default instinct is to go, they've seen the real me. <laughs> And this is truly the reflection of who I am because we've got this kind of negativity bias thing going on. Yeah. So I, and I'm not by any means saying that this is the, the best way to deal with it at all, but I've just had to develop a really, really thick skin. So much easier said than done. Yeah. But that is after years, literally years of, of receiving this type of abuse. But you do, you do start to see patterns to it, to it though. And that I think helps you to realize that it's more about them than you. Cause that they'll, they'll always go for how you look first. Cause they're like, Oh, maybe if I tell this woman she's not attractive, I'll shame her into silence. Does that tend to be a successful strategy for you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's the shame trigger, um, that they're trying to push. And, and then of course that doesn't work because I, you know, I never offered to have sex with them. So, <laughs> it, you know, them taking it off the table is not, not an issue with me. Um, and then they go to, well, you're not qualified. Um, always with women, it's you're not qualified to have this opinion. Stick stick to the things that you should be talking about. Stick to talking about lipstick or, or something like that. And then it goes, when that doesn't work, it goes into the threats to your safety. And it always follows that pattern. And you start to build up a, a, an image of this person just desperately going, look at me, look at me, I want some attention. And you start to think, actually, that's really sad. Well, sad, but Awful and, and terrifying. And, and I, as, as a woman in the public eye with opinions, how do you feel about MPs rejecting the proposal to make misogyny a, a hate crime earlier on this year? Well, they told us why very early on. I think it was Boris Johnson, it might have been Dominic Raab, who said we would be overwhelmed with the amount of cases. We literally don't have the resources. So in a way, they have recognised the scale of misogyny. And the reason it hasn't been made a specific hate crime is because that there just isn't the infrastructure. That's not a good reason for not doing something. But in a strange way, it's, it's kind of an acknowledgement. But it, it also, I mean, when Dominic Raab said misogyny is always wrong, whether it's a man to a woman or a woman to a man, you kind of go, hmm. <laughs> are you the best people to be implementing legislation on this? Maybe we'll just wait for the next government to come in because they might understand it a little bit better. Yeah, and buy him a dictionary in the meantime. Yeah. <laughs> um, just going back to the, the novel for a moment, you know, friendships are uh, really important, but it's such a complicated and fraught part of a, a girl and a young woman's life. 
Luella is very fortunate to have her circle in Toxic. But what if somebody is feeling really isolated and lonely and doesn't really know where to start? I think um, we so often ignore our guts because it's almost an instinctual thing to blame ourselves when an issue arises and to try and change our behavior. And that makes for somebody who's good at self-reflection and good at evolution, but it also makes for somebody that it's quite easy to gaslight and manipulate. And so I think if, if your gut is telling you this, this is wrong, this, this doesn't feel right. I'm not comfortable in this situation. It's okay to, to sit back for a while and, and kind of examine that and, and think about what your boundaries are. And as well, the other thing that I'm trying to teach young women, particularly at the moment, is to get comfortable with saying no, because we're, we're such people pleasers. And just to get comfortable with saying no and hearing no as well. I think is really important. That's really interesting. That that reminds me of, of another conversation we had, Natasha, around confidence, about having the confidence to, well, to say no for a start, but also about how confidence can actually be quite insidious within our society, that as women, we are told that we need to be confident enough to ask for a pay rise or confident enough to say no, when actually, you know, what we need is a, is, is a change to um, our, our societal structures. And, and you had a very interesting story to tell about confidence, as I recall. Yeah. I made a, a short documentary about the gender pay gap and the conclusion that we came to from speaking to all kinds of experts in the field was that the best thing that we can do is introduce shared parental leave. In Scandinavia, both parents get an equal amount of leave and if you don't use it, you lose it. So that means most people choose to take it. And you do see many men taking a more kind of active parenting. It's, it's almost tied up in the, the definition of what it means to be a man. It's like, can you change a nappy in Sweden? So implementing something similar over here where we stop calling it maternity and paternity leave and just call it parental leave. Well, that, first of all, would address a lot of the issues around the pay gap, but also women would stop being discriminated against because, or, or any woman of childbearing age would stop being discriminated against because anybody could potentially need to take time off to, to care for an infant. And then as part of this documentary, I interviewed this woman who was going into a meeting with her boss to ask for a pay rise. And I was kind of coaching her on what language to use. And, and that was the only bit that was broadcast. So they made it all about Oh, you know, women just aren't asking right, and they're just not confident enough. Well, I wonder why that the rest of it was edited out. I was so disappointed because uh, it was an online documentary, so it could have been any length. And yes, it was short. It, it was only, it was only about um, I think five five minutes, but you could have incorporated the other stuff and acknowledged that the the structural system needs to change because otherwise you're just getting to the top of the patriarchy and it's never going to work for you if if you're not a patriarch. Yeah. Well, let's let's go back to those societal structures. Um we've talked about Gen Z uh, and 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 what an important role uh they have and they are currently playing in changing attitudes um and, and challenging social norms. Are you how do you feel about the future? Do you feel optimistic knowing the the forthcoming generation as you do? Yes and no. I hear a lot of people saying, oh, everything will be okay because look how wonderful young people are. 
And I sometimes feel like that's an additional pressure we're putting on them. It's like, we've just messed everything up. You fix it now. <laughs> but you're great and you'll be able to fix it. Yes, yeah, you'll be able to do it. We haven't been able to do it, but I'm sure you will. <laughs> and yeah. I do see a really wonderful set of values. And and that's what I think is missing, particularly from politics in this country at the moment. I just don't think that anything is grounded in a good set of, of values. That's that's what's missing. And that that's what Generation Z have. So yeah, put them in charge. Yeah. <laughs> from now, please. From now. Yeah. <laughs> Natasha, Devon, MB, thank you so much for coming onto the show and for making such a difference to the lives of young people all over the world. It's been lovely speaking to you. And you, thank you. Toxic by Natasha Devon is out now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Raise Her Up from the GDST. To hear all the experts we have on this series and to make sure you don't miss one, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you could leave a review and a five-star rating, it'll help other parents and carers to find the podcast so they can listen and learn too. I'm Cathy Walker. Join me on the next and last episode of this series of Razor Up from the GDST when we welcome Instagrammer, DJ, author and flexible working campaigner Anna Whitehouse, aka Mother Pucker. It's on the employer to not discriminate and so many DNI officers talking the talk and I go, well, are you implementing flexible working? Because that is the primary way to include people. We need leaders and managers to lead with EQ, emotional intelligence. I'll see you then.